You are listening to the Prepared Warrior Podcast, where law enforcement and military trainers discuss cutting-edge training, tactics, and technology. Here is your host, John Wilson. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 7 of the Prepared Warrior. I'm John Wilson. Our guest for this episode is Mike Farrell. I like to start every episode with a quote. This one is from... Blackjack Pershing, who said, If you know how to shoot, and are quite ready to shoot, the chances are that you won't have to shoot. Excited to welcome our guest to the program. Mike Farrell is the president of Smart Firearms Training Devices. He is also a seasoned entrepreneur as well as a professional airline pilot. After taking up shooting, Mike found his new passion. Mike enjoyed shooting so much that he eventually became a firearms instructor and Mike founded Smart Firearms after being dismayed at the poor quality of training guns available. After making his first sale in 2013, Smart Firearms has grown rapidly, more than doubling sales every year. Smart Firearms training guns are now found in some of the finest agencies, academies, and companies across the country and the world. Mike has also been a volunteer sworn law enforcement officer since 2005, along with still being a firearms instructor. Thanks so much for coming, Mike. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. This is great. Yeah, so I was wondering, I guess first, um, what was your first exposure to firearms like and and how did that lead to uh, where you are now? Sure. My first exposure to firearms was when I was receiving training. What I noticed was the quality of instruction from the instructors was fantastic. Mm -hmm. Uh, I couldn't have hoped for better people to teach me to shoot. However, they... The quality of the instructors was not backed up by the quality of the training equipment available. We were basically using plastic toy guns uh, in order to uh, do a lot of the scenario-based training. And outside of that, you would go straight to the range and use a live weapon. So there was a real big gap between basically this is the gun, this is how it fits in a holster, and how you employ that weapon on the range, which is a very controlled environment. Uh, I felt there was a um, very large gap in which there there was an absolute need for better training equipment. Okay, so like, what kind of errors uh, would you see most frequently, um, even as you became a firearms instructor? Sure, uh, there's a lot of errors that that get made. One is from the time you or I were five years old and we looked at our first movie poster and we saw yeah. our heroes, James Bond, Jason Bourne, you name it, mm-hmm. where do they have their finger all the time? And it's right on the trigger, ready to go. Unfortunately, that's naturally where we want to go mm-hmm. with our finger because we want to be ready to go. Unfortunately, with a live weapon, it's absolutely the worst place for our finger to be, it should be indexed along the side of the weapon until the decision is made to employ that weapon against the target. So some of the biggest mistakes made are having the finger move into the guard as the weapon is coming up on target. So as early as when it's clear in the holster, which causes the shooter themselves to possibly get an accidental discharge right down the leg which puts them immediately out of any fight that they were about to be in. Yes. Uh, also, uh, as they transition between targets, leaving their finger in the guard, crossing teammates and no-shoot targets with the finger in the guard. So if they were to take a round 
while they are transitioning, that round would go into one of their teammates. And now not one, but two people are out of that fight on your side. Uh, the other mistake that's not commonly known is the reholster. Uh, as you go to reholster the weapon, mechanically, everything is working against you. If that finger is sitting there inside the guard and you go to put it down in another holster, you're going to get an accidental discharge right down the leg. And it's probably the most common uh, form of accident in law enforcement. So uh, luckily, not normally fatal because uh, big city police departments, you're five minutes away from the best medical care money can buy you with your teammates. So that normally is not a fatal incident. However, it's a very common incident. And it's one that I, I thought should be easy to fix. It, so that, that's, that's what I saw. Right. And I imagine that uh, depending how you get hit down the leg, that could be permanently or, or oh, absolutely. You know, a absolutely. disability for a long time. Absolutely. I mean, it's ended more than a, ended more than a few careers. And, you know, uh, uh, and not to put everything in terms of dollars and cents, but big police departments, every time they have an accidental discharge, uh, departments have told me that it's between 50000 and 120000 just to do the investigation. That's before right. you pay the first dollar of disability. And that's if the round goes into the dirt, does not go into a person, even a person woefully deserving of a round. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, it's, it's a big money issue at the departments. So now you have uh, this company, Smart Firearms, um, and, and you noticed these, uh, these issues. So how did you kind of go about trying to fix those uh, training issues? Sure. I talked to the very best instructors I knew, and I, I asked them, what, where, are, where are our issues coming from? And they were pretty uh, united in their response that we do something different in the mat room, so to speak, where we're teaching uh, people how to fight, how mm -hmm. to defend themselves, how to draw the weapon, and what we do on the range, which one is this free-for-all environment where nothing matters because we're using plastic guns, and then we go to the range where everything matters because we're using live guns, and it's extremely controlled. Mm -hmm. Where So one is this consequence-free environment where... Uh, we're very aggressive. And the other one is we're very non-aggressive, which is good. I mean, I want the range to be a controlled environment. You do not want to injure your people in training. Uh, however, due to this big disconnect, uh, they were saying the plastic training guns don't give enough feedback um, to new shooters to really uh, get rid of the bad habits. So I actually came up with the idea and I bounced it off of these instructors. What if we were to put a sensor suite into the trigger guard based on different algorithms? And at the time, I didn't know enough to really say this is the algorithm. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a just, a just a point of context, when we started Smart Firearms, that sensor suite had four different algorithms built into a total. It now has over 120 because of wow. inputs from the departments. This works, this doesn't work, we need this, we don't need that. Um, and the one thing that we've tried to do is listen to the departments, is that we recognize while we have tactical people in the company, we have Arno, you know, a firearms instructor, New York State Police, 30 years. While we have all these people, what we've, what we've decided is we listen to the people who do it every day. And we try to answer their needs without trying too much to guess their needs. Uh, we try to listen to them and just fill the need instead of 
uh, talking them into something that they may or not, may not want. And they're type A anyway, so you're not going to talk them into anything. Right. <laughs> so um, so uh, with that being said, so that was it. The sensor suite I developed at first, and uh, we had one or two departments buy them, and they hated it, hated it. Oh, yeah. But they liked us enough to tell us why they hated it, okay? Yeah. Yeah. And then we built uh, basically a second version of the first gun, and they said, wow, that solved our problem. And it was good enough for those couple of departments that used it. And what they were nice enough to do is tell us how to make a Gen 2. And then we made a Gen 2 based on all the improvements these two or three departments told us uh, that they needed to make the gun useful in their hands. And we made the Gen 2, and within a month or so of making the Gen 2, um, we got it into service with those three departments that told us what to do and through their word of mouth not any good salesmanship on my part or anything we were getting calls from nypd um after that boston pd new york state police uh and we were starting to get these big departments calling us and it wasn't because we were great salesmen it was because those original departments that we went into service with they're on speed dial with each other good bad or indifferent um if uh, they don't like something they're not shy about picking up the phone and if they like something they're not shy about picking up the phone so and luckily, the Gen 2 was a runaway success uh, with the with the defensive tactics instructors, not the firearms instructors. So, uh, so for a few different reasons, because we we're solving the defensive tactics instructors' problem. So, with that being said, we uh, took additional feedback, and now we're on the Gen 4, about to move into the Gen 6. Wow. Uh, and constantly just trying to answer um, what what the different departments want, and uh, while retaining what we've already made the changes for to to keep the, our current customers happy, operators happy. So it's spread by word of mouth uh, for the most part, just because it was working for the people who were using it. Exactly. And um, is that something that happens frequently with police training, kind of devices or tactics where? Um, they're looking for something to to fill a need or or was do you think there was issues at the time with with that specifically uh firearm safety or or it just they well yeah sure there's always there's always issues that drive needs so to speak and Mm -hmm. if there's a high profile uh firearms accident that may drive that department to say hey you know what not next year not two years from now Mm -hmm. but we're going to solve something this month uh, and, you know, that frees, you know, there's never, unfortunately, and this this does not just go for police departments, this goes for you and I in our own lives. Mm-hmm. There's very little money for prevention, but there's a ton of money in cures, all oh, right? Yeah. And so we don't want to necessarily, we don't necessarily plan well to prevent problems, but once a problem occurs, we're very good at making sure it doesn't happen again. Mm-hmm. So uh, with that being said, uh, I would say word of mouth was a big driver, but but... At individual departments, a lot of times it would be, unfortunately, an accident that would make our phone ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, and, can, hey, can you fix this kind of problem? And a lot of times, uh, you know, the answer is not that specific problem. I mean, I, I'm very honest with what uh, I tell departments if they call us. And uh, and I will say this, uh, um, really the big Delinear. We we are a tool that help these departments avoid accidents, but really, what prevent accidents and what make better shooters at the department? 
and why U.S. and Canadian police departments have such a good record of firearm safety is because of what incredible instructors they have. So if they buy us, we're not necessarily fixing a problem overnight. Right. We're really just in enabling good instructors to help fix a problem that might have be out there on the street. The fact is, without the, without the instructors doing what they do, our device would be useless. So when you talked about the the device um, and how there's a sensor and there's a number of algorithms, what can you explain sort of how th- those algorithms work? Absolutely, or, or what, what they do. Absolutely. So basically, um, when we first came out with the training gun, I just figured out. Pick a number in your head. Are we going to give them one second to get to the trigger before the alarm goes off? Is it two seconds? Mm-hmm. You know, name a number. And I forget what we even came up with now at the time. But let's just say it was a second. Well, then I learned from talking to the instructors, hey, you know what? That might be fine for that first shot. But we want that student to be able to stage his second, third, and fourth shot. And those are not really where we find a problem with accidents. So we want to buy that student more time. So we had to go back in and build more time into the subsequent shots. Or um, or if the student is what's called staging the trigger. If he's coming up on the trigger and just taking that one-eighth of a second more before he squeezes off, you want to give him that room to do that time-wise. So these are all things we built in, and not all of them worked out. Like sometimes police departments say, hey, we think we need this. And once you build it, they say it's actually not doing what we thought it would do. And I think part of our success has been uh, the the willingness to fail uh, is that the willingness to try and fail um, and um, and to to make agreements with departments to try beta. Uh, to try, hey, let's send you two guns with this built into it and just see how it works. Uh, Do you hate it? Do you love it? Um, And, yeah, so that's basically a lot of the algorithms are built around timing. Um, And it gets down to the milliseconds, if you could believe it. Like you and I, if we were to be out shooting, if you're a fast shooter and I'm a slow shooter, uh, the difference between us, time on the trigger, is actually not very much. So in order to... In order to not alarm a slow, deliberate shooter while catching someone who's on his way to an accident, um, it's very little. So, uh, so, so you're defining things in milliseconds sometimes, and not even quarters of a second or sixteenth of a second. We used to divide things up into quarters of seconds, and I thought, oh my goodness, this is way too detailed, so to speak. There's a quarters of a second, no one can even realize. And when you're really looking at a a trigger pull, a quarter of a second is an eternity, so to speak, between what a slow, deliberate shooter is doing and what someone who's just lingering in the guard is doing, right. in the trigger guard. So, yeah, that's the algorithms, basically. There's more to it than that. Um, as far as we have visual alarms to talk to the instructors, all those type of things that are going on. But, but to answer your question, it's mostly based on time. And so what are the uh, the smart firearms made out of? Yeah, yeah. Um, made out of high-impact plastic because mm-hmm. what we want the departments to be able to do is treat them exactly like their defensive tactics weapons. Draw them down a flight of stairs, mm-hmm. run them over with a Crown Victoria. Whatever they were doing with their blue guns, we want them to be able to do with ours. Mm-hmm. So um, really beat them up in the mat room and not have them break. So high-impact ABS is what they're made out of. There's other parts of the gun that are made out of nylon, uh, nylon plastics, um, 
And there's some metal built into the gun just to give it some weight. Right. Uh, so inside the magazine, inside the nose of the weapon. Um, and then we have an electronics bay that's basically just a circuit board, some springs for the trigger, and uh, speakers and all that. But basically, if you looked at the bulk of the weapon, it's high-impact ABS. And so why is it important for uh, law enforcement to train with replica weapons? Sure. And it's, and it's not necessarily... Uh, so for those departments out there, the training with uh, conversion kits and live weapons that they've just made safe for these scenarios, that's fine too. Okay, there's, there's places for all of them. Right. Uh, the sim guns are fantastic. I mean, you almost cannot replace the um, the pain inoculation that goes from being hit by a sim round and being able to continue on with that fight. We don't replicate that. Mm -hmm. So that's not the market we're in, yet I love that market, okay? I think that they do a fantastic job. Where we, replica weapons are great in the non-active shooter scenario, so to speak, where I'm looking at you, like a lot of what we're doing, even in this podcast, okay? Mm -hmm. we, We take a lot of cues off each other, right? Like facial, hands, everything. And when we're, we're both buttoned up in protective gear, yeah. we lose a lot of that. So we lose a lot of those pre-attack cues. Is he interested in me? Is he interested in something else? What is, what is the focus of the conversation going on? And for police officers who are training, vehicle stops, um, uh, suspicious persons, all that sort of stuff, a lot of it's very, it's driven by what's going on. It's not the black and white of an active shooter, someone firing away with an AK-47 in the middle of a library. That's pretty cut and dry. You have to engage that person and put them down, right? So a lot of what they train for is not that. It's which way is this going? And if we're both buried under protective gear, we're not seeing all of that. So we have to actually exaggerate what we're doing as as role players uh, to make that person know what we're about to do. And that's not how life works. A lot of it's very subtle. And a lot of it is is not things we control, you know. So it's not it's the things that you know uh, that are just happening in our subconscious that, that um, we learn to read over time in our lives. So the, and the other reason why replica guns are great is that unfortunately, um, ammunition, live ammunition, has a bad habit of finding its way into sterile events. So where everyone is de-gunned, there's no live ammunition coming into this event. It's all in the gun lockers outside. Well, three, four times a year, a police officer gets shot, a role player gets shot by a live weapon that somehow made it into the event. Uh, just happened down in Punta Gorda, Florida, uh, where a uh, role player was shot in the chest by a Citizens Police Academy uh, by an officer who thought he had a SIM gun in his hand. Uh, so... Uh, Replicas make life easy for your instructors because they can look a mile away and know it's a simulator gun. It's not a. Can it, do I have to look closer to see if it's a live weapon or not? No, it's an orange gun. You know, so that's why I like those guns. Police departments choose them in different colors. Some get black, some get blue, mm-hmm. uh, just uh, due to uh, whatever they want. But I, I think we have a definite uh, place in the equation where. Uh, uh, where there's a lot of decision-making, a lot of ambiguity, where sim guns are far better than a live weapon. Sure. So, yeah, replica weapons that, that fire are for situations where you want to have to, uh, like, you know you're going to use them to fire That's a, right. a lot more. Whereas yours, you know, there's the minutia of interactions with people where 
you may just have your hand on on your gun and not quite know. So, so there's so many different, I guess, situations. That's what you're saying that that police deal with. That there's so many. While there are so many different training kind of tools, there's so many different situations they relate to. Absolutely. And if you look at it, like if you look, if you and I went over Mm -hmm. to an academy Mm -hmm. today and they were doing scenario-based training, they're doing mat room work, Mm -hmm. you know, you may divide it up. Let's just say 50% end up in no shoots and 50% end up in shoots. Mm -hmm. The reality of a police officer's life is 99.999% of his interactions end up in no shoots. The vast majority, thank goodness, yeah. end up in no shoots. So um, th- I-, I believe most training should be geared toward, uh, you know, a shooting should be an, uh, uh, the unexpected event, not the expected event. And, uh, the, and if training reinforces that, you get pretty much the right responses out of it, the startle reflexes and all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. that you don't get if almost every scenario ends up in a shooting. So... A lot of people are using uh, your your tools now. Um, what kind of responses do you get? And I know you say people will tell you, um, you know, maybe they'll suggest things you can change sure. or this and that. But but what kind of overall response do you get from people who who use smart firearms? Yeah, I, I, from the instructors, I have we have received a universal uh, response that they believe that we are improving the quality of their firearms training, improving the quality of their recruit training, if that's what they use it for, and I, and that we are lowering their accidental discharge rates. So that would be the universal um, response. Overall, very positive. And what I feel is the feedback we're getting on improvements uh, shows me we're doing it right. And what I mean by that is we're getting very small suggestions like wow if this could just be if the speaker could just be a little bit louder it'd be great Mm -hmm. and the fact that we're getting that i love because it shows me that the big stuff uh is the sensor suite working right does a magazine release right is the trigger feel right all of those things when we're not hearing that anymore it tells me that we're we're doing a really good job on our improvement schedule and Mm -hmm. while we try to be disciplined with our improvements that i I tried to make sure that that is kind of a consensus that we're getting from the departments. And I check with other departments when I hear something, what do you think? And if it's a consensus, we go ahead with it and we make a, we make a change. But I try, to, uh, I try to be a little disciplined about when and why we do things. So speaking of uh, innovations, what, what kind of things uh, are new for smart, uh, coming from smart firearms? Sure. Um, we have uh, now our... SF-25 training weapon, we have just modified so it will fit both the M&P holster and the SIG-320 holster, which is, uh, and soon it will also fit the H&K USP holster. And the reason that is great, a lot of sheriff's departments, a lot of big PDs, you know what, they have one gun they're issued, and everyone that comes in the door has a holster for that gun. And once they get, once they de-gun at the gun locker and they re-gun with the replica weapons, they're all set. So they don't need uh, multiple holster fits. But a lot of sheriff's departments that allow for different weapons, a lot of neighboring departments coming in and training, they need 
these to fit different holsters. So we've modified the weapon to work with that. And that's to, it may seem like a small thing, but it's a, it's a massive improvement for a lot of these sheriff's departments that don't need to carry extra inventory for a bunch of different weapons that may never come through the door. Right. Uh, our, our next uh, improvement, we're coming out with an M4. Uh, training weapon that will be used for both simulators and scenario-based training. So, okay. which will have our sensor suite um, in it, and we believe it will it will bring a new level of realism to scenario-based training that hasn't been there before. What kind of challenges do you have uh, developing like such a different weapon? Yeah, like that? Um, the biggest thing is trying to really. Uh, integrate the lessons learned from the previous uh, projects, the previous weapons, and figuring out what's the same and what's different. Yeah. You know, and maybe, and sometimes trying to recognize when something's different to let go of things that you had to do in the pistols to say, you know what, this is a new challenge and new opportunities. Mm-hmm. So we're going to do these new things in the M4 where we always try to try to carry things over. Uh, when we, when you, you know, I think emotionally you want to carry things over that you've spent a lot of time perfecting, like the trigger system. We finally got it now that it works so well in the pistols. Mm-hmm. We have the right with five and a half pound pull. We have a good reset. And when we went to the M4 with the capability of going full auto, um, that no longer was adequate. So we had to go to a spring-based system that we, a mechanically spring-based system that we didn't use before. And emotionally, that was tough to let go of. We spent so much time yeah. getting this pistol trigger just right, and now we have to uh, go with a new solution for the M4. Those type of things are tough. But really, it's a matter of uh, laying out the requirements from the get-go and not allowing too much mission creep. And that's, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a passionate person, and you want to have the very best thing out there, uh, you're very susceptible to mission creep. It's like, wow, I want that. I want this. Um, you know, uh, when the reality is you, you have to base it on what reality is in front of you. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that, I would say that's my, our, our biggest challenge. Now, you're also uh, an airline pilot. Um, what do you think about um, pilots being armed? Do you th- how do you think that would be? Uh, is that a, a useful thing? Do you think or you know I could just answer it generically. Just mm-hmm. um, what I know of it in the United States. You know they they do it in the United States. That's public public information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know I I think it's a good deterrent. I would guess, um, and it's uh, an additional layer. You know of safety. Uh, you know, causes probably logistical problems for anyone that was planning an attack. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so generically, I think it's a it's a good idea. You know, I think it's a good idea as long as those pilots are properly trained and uh, vetted. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, that is a uh, it's a fantastic idea, it, and I think it's situational because it works for the United States. Would it work for Canada? It's just something for each country to decide what their risk rewards are. I would think and. Uh, but in the United States, it seems like it's worked out okay. Mm-hmm. I guess I just have uh, one one more question for you, Mike. Sure. Um, just in general, what do you think is the most important thing um, for firearms instructors who are training law enforcement to know, um, you know, about uh, training people to be safe in the future? Sure. Um, one is 
when you are training people, some people like to make, they think they're giving people more bang for their buck if they make things tough. Mm -hmm. uh, I would disagree with that. I would say you're giving people most bang for their buck if you make it relatable. If you make it something they can carry forward with, uh, use in the field, uh, and don't bog them down with 55 different techniques. Uh, basically, just give them relatable training that you know that they uh, they can tap into when they're under stress. Because when we're under stress, one thing I, I have learned as a pilot is a lot of your fine motor functions they're not really there for you. Uh, when you're under stress, it's it's down to gross motor, uh, and so if you have fine motor skills that are there, that are part of your stay alive strategy, they probably shouldn't be there. So, uh, so a lot of things that look really cool, magazine change change outs that you know the YouTube stars seem to love that right. have two magazines in your hand and you're rotating it around, one out, one in. Um, I feel the reality of life. Um, means you'll end up with two magazines on the ground and nothing in the gun, uh, where, you know, if you just did things that depended on gross motor, uh, then you'd be better off. And a lot of times that's slower. And things, life's imperfect. Um, so, and you have to acknowledge that the people that you're training are not going to have the time to be as good at this as you are. So, uh, so if you're training, if you have two weeks to train people, you have to acknowledge the fact that none of them, I just accept some of them will be back every day at the range. That's your outliers. The rest of them will go on with their lives. And they'll go back and they'll recall in six months. And that'll be the first time back on the range. Um, and six months after that, that'll be the next time on the range. So you have to teach them things in a way that they can retain it. Uh, and that would be my only thoughts going forward. And as far as you know, I'm no guru on firearms instruction. I just know what I hear from the guys who are. And uh, so, and what I see uh, out in the field. And I would say that, yeah, make it relatable and make your training something that's that they can retain when they're under stress, which means any of the fine motor stuff, get it out. Get it out of your training curriculum completely. My, it looks cool, but it's not. Right. It doesn't help them. That that's that sounds like great advice. You know, keeping it simple and and usable in real life. Uh, thanks so much, Mike, for coming on the program, and uh, good luck in the future. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure talking to you. This has been the Prepared Warrior Podcast. For more info on our guests or other episodes, check out thepreparedwarrior.com. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for the Prepared Warrior Podcast, email j-o-n at theprepared-warrior.com. 